What is the most used man-made material on earth? You guessed right, it's concrete. Look around, it's everywhere. Sidewalks, driveways, foundations, floors you stand on, and even entire buildings are made out of concrete. So why don't we discuss it more? In each episode of Concrete Logic, we will explore one concrete-related topic with the help from industry professionals that are shaping the future of the trade. We'll talk with suppliers, contractors, architects, engineers, specialists, and even some proponents of competing materials about their views of concrete and their vision of its future. And welcome to another episode of the Concrete Logic Podcast. And today I have Chris Bennett with me. Chris, can you give a short intro about yourself and your company? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, Seth. My name is Chris Bennett, and I am the uh, founder owner of Bennett Build. We're a concrete consultancy. We represent owners, design groups, and helping oversee documentation uh, and installation to lower budget lower carbon, lower schedule. Yeah. So uh, we've been communicating over LinkedIn and have shared interest on uh, what's going on with, uh, with concrete and the, the efforts to lower, lower its carbon footprint and, and the different things that are out there and, and uh, things that may be concerning to several of us and uh, just want to make sure that we're going down the right path. So do you want to uh, kind of share, I guess, first of all, when folks reach out to you and your company, I guess, what, is it a concrete contractor? Is it an owner's rep? Who's reaching out to you? Sure. Um, I would say most of the time it's either someone from uh, owner or or design side, so a developer, project management company, uh, or, or an architectural or engineering firm. And then from there, get introduced to the rest of the team. Um, I have had uh, a lot of experience with uh, training for uh, making with contractors for not only the drawings and the specification, but a hands-on approach sort of marrying all three together. Uh, and we've done that successfully uh, at University of Alberta, uh, up in Canada, most recently with University of Akron NSERCAMP and the National Concrete Corrosion Symposiums for the last few years. Um, but then also locally, different Construction Specification Institute uh, uh, chapter meetings, regional uh, sorts of events, um, ISCS, uh, International Society for Construction Sciences, things like that. So um, we'll, we'll take that idea of education, um, not just in a project scenario, but outside of it, just like why we're together today, so that you can talk about things, go through things, you know, why is a specification written this way? And, and have those uh, sometimes heated, uh, but always educational, moments that you just can't have in an under a project condition right so before we got uh we hit record you were going to tell me about the uh the cobra effect <laughs> of what's going on right now in the concrete industry and I, you asked me if i knew what that uh, that was and i, I did not so 
Could you please explain? Sure. So the, uh, and I don't know, let me preface this stuff with, um, I don't know how much of it's true. It's one of those tales that gets passed down, right? Uh, but the cobra effect, uh, simply put, is about um, taking too simple of solutions to complex problems and then making the problem worse. And the original story, I think it's supposed to take place in colonial India. Uh, so India, like uh, 150 years ago, under British rule, and they had this problem with cobras, all these venomous snakes. And uh, the local magistrates, local you know, colonial powers said, you know, if we put a bounty uh, and pay money for every snake that's killed and brought in, we're going to get rid of our snake problem, right? we got too many snakes, so we're going to kill them. Simple solution, right? And uh, so it was very, very effective. And then over time, they noticed that they were getting more and more cobras brought in. And they're like, man, like how many, we're killing so many cobras. How could there possibly be even more in second quarter and third quarter or whatever? And it turns out that some very entrepreneurial locals said, wow, I can get, you know, whatever it is, X amount of bucks for a cobra. So I'm going to start cobra farming. And that way I can bring in a whole wheelbarrow full of cobras and get, you know, even more money. And so uh, the British said, well, that's, that's not right. So we're going to discontinue the bounty. And then with this lack of economic incentive, all these guys were like, oh, I'm not paying for the snake's upkeep, and they release them. So at the end of this policy, they, they not only had a snake problem, but it was actually worse. Um, and so that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's the cobra effect story. And one of the similarities that I see in the last, particularly two years, uh, but certainly before then, uh, is this emphasis on uh, low-carbon concrete. And there is this knee-jerk reaction uh, that uh, is to simply remove cement and replace the cement with something else. And it isn't, uh, and it's usually, uh, uh, there's a, you know, a famous specification, uh, the Marin County style specification that's lauded as a great roadmap. And it is, but it isn't. Um, it tells you to take out cement, and it tells you to essentially replace it with slag or fly ash. And there's nothing wrong with slag or fly ash um, in moderation. But when you completely change the materiality of the concrete, um, that's okay as long as you're updating your approach to curing and your approach to construction. You know, it's so people do not realize, I think, or maybe appreciate, of how different um, a material change that is. Uh, I, I was talking with uh, a real estate financial group, um, and they've got this benchmark for 70% replacement of cement with slag. And they're going to teach you know, all their project managers how to update their specs. And I'm like, OK. <laughs> that's a lot of slag, you know, um, and slag is very alkaline, you know, that's going to have some changes uh, and you've got less cement. So you're going to have less hydration potentially. And slag is, you know, is also dependent on 
cement reacting, right? It's, you know, whether you call it a secondary cement or cementitious material, slag like fly ash and some of those, those other dry pozzolans have to wait for cement to do its thing before they become beneficial. And, and so I asked, well, you know, how are you preparing, you know, your design teams? How are you preparing, you know, what are we doing with our constructors out in the market to prepare them for that mighty big, you know, sweep of the pen? And the answer was nothing. And I'm on some, some pretty large projects and some small projects uh, across the country. And any time that I have been a part of a project where you've got these massive, uh, this massive removal of cement and you're replacing it, you know, with fly ash or slag, uh, but also, you know, silica fume, things like that, you get massive problems with dry shrink, uh, deflection, uh, your undulation, your curling, all, all becomes, uh, the problems become exacerbated. And so all of a sudden you've got this, you know, low carbon slab, but it's curled up, right? And so before you can put your tilt-up walls, you've got to mow down all of your edges so it's going to fit in there now. Well, you know, is that really sustainable? Um, uh, the fact that we've now got to put, you know, some sort of epoxy or some sort of resinous material to, to kind of glue that slab back together. You know, what's the embodied carbon on that? Um, and are we including that in our formulations? Um, and, and, I, and again, it's, I don't think that it comes from a place that is not well intended. Now, I think everybody is, is trying to remove cement um, from a, a place where they believe that I'm going to build more sustainable concrete. I don't think anybody's trying to make bad decisions. It's just, not, it's just too simple of a, of a fix for a pretty complicated problem. Um, and, and I would say also, um, and I'd be curious to, to find out what's happening in your neck of the woods on this. You know, with this increased demand for slag and fly ash, everybody's running out of it, you know, and there's transportation issues too. Um, but even in, in a place like Missouri, right, where they've got, was it like two or three coal plants and historically never have a fly ash problem. You've got ready-mix suppliers, hopefully telling people, but maybe not, that they're adding slag to the mix because they don't have enough fly ash. That's how much the demand um, has happened. I've, I've talked with uh, airports, large builders with, you know, just billion-dollar pipelines, uh, and everybody is waiting on fly ash to hit, you know, Corpus Christi coming from, you know, South Korea or China. And, and that, you know, and I start thinking, I'm like, number one, how, how did that fly ash mix get an EPD, you know, an environmental product declaration, if it's got this, you know, fuel burn from, from South Korea all the way to Texas? How are we being sustainable, you know, and, and what is the true embodied carbon cost there? Um, and, and so there's, again, it's like this really well-intended uh, approach to simply limiting cement is creating all of these uh, uh, all of these other problems. Um, and what are you guys seeing out there yeah. in your neck of the woods? Well, we're we're uh, we're all learning as we go here. Um, so, like you said, uh, folks aren't uh, 
thinking of the long-term implications of changing from the type two to the type one L cement, um, it's just showing up on jobs. So that, you know, for us, we're, you know, we get, uh, someone invites us to bid on a job. We get, we get the drawings, the specifications, and then we dig in and we find out what they want us to price. Then we go out to our suppliers and vendors and, and get the pricing accordingly. Um, I think that was the motion that we went through for, uh, you know, majority of my career, the last, you know, two, two, oh my gosh, almost two and a half decades. But, uh, um, the, I, I think what we're going to have to do though, is kind of look at what, you know, what's on the menu, I guess, versus just taking it and turning over the vendors and getting pricing because as as you're saying we're we're seeing and we're seeing some issues with uh uh type 1l cement low breaks um is is the big concern at the moment um but then again i don't know if you know necessarily if 1l is and i know the answer is i'm saying it, 1l is the only this the sole culprit of it sure. all I think it's it's just that we're coming up with mixed designs and maybe going, looking at it, and you might see this too, is it, uh, 1L is a one-for-one one with type two, and maybe that's not that's not uh, the case. Um, so they're just replace, replacing it one-for-one, one and then uh, there's no change, no change in the, uh, in the mixed designs, and maybe that's the issue that we're having. Uh, but as far as the availability of it, um, it's uh it seems to be uh i don't i don't know of it at least in my area it specifically uh like hey we're low on one l or we can't use it or whatever it's it's over here it's if you hear any shortage it's just cement and <laughs> uh and as far as fly ash and stuff I mean, I remember not too long ago that you, uh, when a ready mix supplier sent you over a quote, they had the, uh, you know, hundred percent Portland cement price. And then you got a, uh, a fly ash mix price. And usually the fly ash was a little bit cheaper. Um, but now you're just seeing, you're not getting, you're not getting those options anymore. It's, it's, it's just this is it this is what you get <laughs> this is what we can get our hands on there's no there's no other options uh so yeah uh it it's 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 very uh, it seems very fluid right now and that's the kind of the reason you know for the podcast is for us to talk through these things because i don't know how many folks are actually talking about this stuff they're just being and i've asked this before for folks i was like who's who's given the who's given the direction saying hey uh we need to reduce our our carbon footprint and this is the way you're gonna do it like this is this is how you do it and and then do the architects and engineers just do what they're told and just like you were telling me before that uh uh the guy said hey you know we're gonna we're gonna reduce our cement by 70 <laughs> percent <laughs> which is that seems insane to me and no one goes uh excuse me right. <laughs> how's that gonna work uh it, yeah so um but as uh as far as um 
what we're trying to do as concrete contractors is get ahead of those things and and trying to educate uh, uh, the general contractors, the developers out there. Um, we're trying to get a hold of them ahead of time and say, hey, these are these are the concerns uh, that we have with these mixed designs, and try to get it out in front of them before we get too far. Uh, and the good the good GCs out there are reaching out to us and saying, hey. This is the challenge that's been put upon us. This is this is you know um, the sustainability requirements on this project. Uh, how do we get there? And then what concerns do you have on how we get there? Um, so we're we're seeing some of that over here too. Yeah, I think I, I think to answer your question, you asked you know how, how are people becoming number one informed, and then how are what is the process of how they come up with the solution? And um, I, I think in a maybe oversimplistic view, uh, there's number one, the concern for a more sustainable future. And that, that uh, idea drives your, your big builders, your property management groups, your developers, your financiers to Number one, they've got to compete with each other. So everybody rushes to make these bold, you know, commitments, you know, for, you know, uh, Brookfield properties uh, uh, or uh, Heinz, you know, any, any of these groups uh, have made some very serious commitments and they are deadly serious about hitting their targets. And so then this filters out through the design engineering and design build community and, and it's basically been told, you know, like, hey, if you're gonna to respond to any of our requests for proposal, you need to have a solution on how you're gonna be low carbon for your steel, for your cladding, for operations, certainly for your concrete, because that's, that's a big driver of embodied carbon um, and global warming potential, right? And so you've got all of these highly smart people and very, very capable teams needing to, you know, get their deliverable in, which is, you know, their request, for, you know, their proposal or their marketing package, whatever it is. And they sort of look for whatever is, you know, the loudest or maybe even low hanging fruit. And I think the loudest messaging that you hear from right now is, is from your, your ready mix suppliers. And that is, you know, if, if you're going to reduce cement, you know, then this is how you're going to do it. And if you're going to go low carbon, you need to go with slag or flash, something we sell, right? It's got to be within our distribution network. Um, and I don't think it was intentional. I think it's, you know, they sell, you know, to use the metaphor, they sell hammers, right? And so when they're going to solve a problem as it comes to them, they're going to try and, you know, hammer in all the nails. Um, they're not necessarily going to be aware of, technologies or methodologies outside of their distribution network. Um, I had one guy, a national technical guy for one of these trade organizations, and be, because we were talking about how there's so many different domestic uh, pozzolans that you can use, dry add-on, different types of uh, lightweight aggregate, liquid silica, which I'm a huge fan of, cellulose fibers. Um, I've got a look up this new thing that somebody uh, turned me on to um, Texas or Oklahoma called Red Mud, 
concrete. I'm like, I don't know anything about that, uh, but somebody's having success with it. And so there are all of these things that are not generally in the wheelhouse um, your traditional ready mix uh, distributor, right? And, and this technical guy goes, you know, there are a lot of ways to be low carbon and to potentially be more cost effective. But he's like, our membership is ready mix suppliers. You know, we're not going to do anything that's going to cause them to leave our organization by promoting things that are not selling their products. It's just not going to happen. And, um, and so you've got this scenario now on one hand where we're dealing with these shortages and we're dealing with these uh, deformities that are happening in concrete because of these intense material changes. But at the same time, and I, I use this uh, talking with airport and they do something uh, like you know 100 trucks a day in concrete right um, and uh, and they're like if you could just help us a little bit with with price with material sourcing with anything it would help us keep our schedules avoid delays and um, and I said okay you know the, the first thing that we're gonna have to do is work with our ready mix supplier and let them know that we're going to be using alternative, you know, SCMs, not just slag, not just fly ash. And there's going to be a fight there because right now they've essentially, you know, overbooked uh, everybody for the flight. And then when you show up to get your concrete, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, but, you know, we can offer you a $200 vow you know, voucher if you want to fly tomorrow. You know, that kind of thing. They've already got everybody's money. Um, and like you said, you're going to get what you're going to get. And as a, as a supplier, that's an amazing place to be in. Even if you're hurting getting your own supply, when you literally have people lined up outside the door and you're calling the shots on the price and when it's going to be delivered, how much you can have, um, uh, that, that's, a, that's a tough spot to be able to, to be in. Uh, now, I, I think luckily, though, uh, because the construction pace is still so strong, um, and, and, I, and in any real measure, I don't see slowing down. They're going to have to do something, and there will be threats uh, from different distribution channels, which is, you know, and competition is a good thing. And so I think you'll see a lot more of that. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation right now definitely on not just the supply level, but constructability, pricing. Uh, you know, in, in some parts of the country, slag is is getting pretty close to the price of cement. You know, and you're like, well, then <laughs> just give me cement, except they don't have it, <laughs> you know? So what do you do? You know, what do you do? So something's going to have to change, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's so many. I think... Do you think that we're trying to solve this problem uh, like across the board nationally with the same solution instead of like going and looking at wherever that specific project is and look around locally what's available, uh, who the who the suppliers are, who the contractors are in that area and say, okay, this is this is this is the goal. This is this is what we want to achieve. How do we do it in, within this uh, area that we have instead of dragging fly ash or slag 
across the country or from other countries or <laughs> wherever else and saying, hey, because that, that, that's what it kind of, it feels like what we're doing is, and this is this go in all kinds of different spectrums <laughs> in life right now, but we're like trying to, we got one solution for everything and everywhere, right? And uh, and that's how that's how concrete is right now. This this is the solution. We're all gonna do type one L cement. That is that's how we're gonna get to our goal. Or um, it just it, it seems like uh, I don't know. Then my tinfoil hat comes on. <laughs> it's like all right, who's who's behind this? All of a sudden, cement shortage and. Why is type type one L cement that's been around? It's been around for decades. Now now it's popular. Um, are we dealing with a shortage of type two cement? And someone's like, okay, how do we how do we make this cement uh, the amount of cement that we have available? How do we make it go further? Sure. All right. Well, let's start adding stuff to it and uh, cutting it down, and and then we'll. Uh, come up with a reason why we need to use it. Yeah, so. you know, I, I, I think you, I'm sorry, I, I didn't want to cut you off there. No, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I think you, you just identified perhaps one of maybe the biggest problem, um, and that is a one-size-fits-all solution over a variety of geographies, and, and I know I don't need to tell you if you're, you know, our, our aggregates different from state to state, region to region, uh, freeze, thaw, temperature, you know, you can remove a lot more cement in Florida than you can uh, in Ontario uh, or Missouri. You know, Missouri's got huge fluctuations in hot and cold. Um, and you need to take those, those elements into account. Um, and so, yeah, you know, for, so for maybe some climates, you can remove some pretty exciting uh, amounts of, of cement. Um, in others, you can do it, but you need to realize you're going to pay a price. Number one, probably shortening the, the life cycle uh, of that facility, um, which then also increases your embodied carbon <laughs> footprint, you know. Um, and, uh, and there are some solutions uh, that regionally are going to be, are going to be different. Um, uh, and and it, it sounds like I'm picking on Missouri a lot. Uh, just in my mind, you know, traditionally, again, they've got a huge supply, uh, usually, you know, a surplus of fly ash. And so that sounds like it, it could be a great solution um, as part of lowering cement content there. Um, but maybe not so much uh, in, in other in other parts of the country. And uh, in a successful, truly low carbon program, uh, right? As as you as you and I have just talked about, you know, you've got to take in then the, the measurement of what is the distance that material is traveling. Um, I, I would also add, um, I don't know how much you guys are seeing the requirements for environmental product declarations. Um, I, I like the idea and they're still relatively new and so they're kind of being fleshed out a little bit 
you'll see uh, you'll see requirements for compressive strength um, and sort of other structural elements, but there really isn't a requirement of what type of concrete you're ending up with. Um, you know, and so maybe some additional uh, benchmarks for permeability, right? I mean, as uh, uh, what's uh, Dr. Tyler Lake, Oklahoma State University, the oh, concrete yeah. freak. Oh, I love watching that guy's episodes. Um, you know, as he says in, in multiple you know lectures and videos, good concrete is low permeability concrete. Low permeability concrete is good concrete. And so somehow that needs to be, you know, the quality of what we're making, that needs to be included as uh, a quantifiable objective. And I don't think we're doing that. There's a lot of focus on uh, the constituent materials, you know, uh, individually, but then as they come together to create concrete, you know, what type, what type of concrete are you creating? And, and that absolutely has to be on a um, and, may, and I think that will come. There's, you know, only so many liquidated damages <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, hemorrhaging of contingencies and stuff that the AEC community can do in this current pursuit of, of low carbon. You know, something's going to have to change. Uh, you know, your insurance companies <laughs> are, are going to get upset. You know, like, didn't we already pay for this build? <laughs> you know? Um, and, and so I think that will sort of naturally uh, come about um, uh, on a larger share of the market, but that's something that we, we try to do um, uh, mostly successfully uh, day in and day out is sort of, you know, take that next leap to approaching new ways of curing, uh, thinking about setting up your documents in a more integrated approach with the supplier, with the people that will actually be building it, um, and, and combining training for everybody instead of these um, well-meaning but oftentimes kind of heavy-handed approaches. I, and I, I don't think anybody's trying to be you know, malicious or mean about it. They're, they're taking embodied carbon very seriously. So they throw something really dramatic out there without understanding exactly what it's going to take to get but uh, yeah, you know, it's. I think it's also better to have, uh, you know, at least at the initially that this low carbon sort of future that we're entering into, you know, it's a learn. It's a learning curve. Make as many mistakes now, and and learn from that. You know, that's it's unavoidable, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we beat up what the problems are. So what is, uh, what, what are some of the things that you think are successful out there? Like, uh, uh, you know, I was going to say, is there, is there anyone out there, I guess, you, since you're, you're, you're way into specifications and, and, and trying to bridge that gap and get everybody on the same page, is there anyone out there that's just doing the, uh, going back to the performance specification versus dictating on what the ingredients of the concrete is? Like, are you seeing any of that? Is it, are we going back to that at all? Um, I, I think so. And fundamentally, you're also seeing a shift, um, particularly in 
which reference standards are or are not being included in uh, these documents. Um, you know, with, with these higher water demands, a lot of your surface supplied water approaches, um, uh, you know, ASTM 309, uh, C1315, your you know, membrane kind of stuff, your silicate curing, um, which was arguably not so great to begin with, um, even when we had richer cement um, mixes to begin with. Um, when you've got these increased water demands and you've got, you know, slag and you've got PLC and the limestone, which, uh, you know, uh, is a fighter multifaceted, you know, you know, little bits, it requires a lot of water. Um, and you've got cement, you know, kiln dust, which can be highly alkaline. So you've got all of these things demanding more water. Um, and you still have a lot of people you know, trying to spray down a silicate, you know, uh, particularly you see it, you know, uh, when the concrete is still fresh and there's no lime to react to it. People be out, will be out there bug spraying it down. And that is coming from specifications, that direction. Um, it's in the spec. If somebody wants to work on this project, then the estimator's got to put forward numbers for that approach. Um, um, are you talking about colloidal? Silica, spraying that down, is that what you're talking about? No, um, uh, I'm talking about silicates. Um, silicates. Col colloidal silica is, is a bit of a different beast, um, and, and that is an area of improvement over the last 15 years, which I think is helpful, particularly if you're trying to be low carbon, whether you're uh, using it as a spray-on, uh, and you'll see it in densifiers, finishing aids, uh, a lot of different sort of topical uh, products. Uh, but I think what is uh, on some of the formulations of those types of products that are most exciting are the internally cured uh, types of uh, liquid SCMs uh, or liquid admixtures, where you're supplying the water uh, evenly throughout the entire matrix of the slab. Those are very, very exciting. Um, and we've been very, very lucky. I got exposed to those technologies, I don't know, back in 2013, 2014. And unless I'm directed otherwise, um, we will usually adopt some style of an internal curing approach. Um, cellulose fibers are also great um, at uh, um, helping dry shrink prevention um, because of how they interact with the hydration cycles. They also don't tend to clump up as much as some of your steel fibers, you know, and mixes and things like that. Um, and, and I think, you know, but in order to have that sort of be on the table, it's already got to be in, in the documents. Um, otherwise, people don't know to, to be looking at it. And so I am seeing a, a shift away from silicate and surface supplied water curing into more internal curing, um, including uh, including your traditional sort of lightweight pre pre wetted aggregates of clay and shale um, uh, that have a lot of benefits too. You know, in, internal curing is is very very old, 
um, but traditionally in modern times has been used in kind of infrastructure construction, bridge decks, highways, that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, we, we just did a, a project in downtown San Francisco for uh, an architectural topping slab. Uh, turned out beautifully. Um, and uh, it's, it's, and it had some of these, you know, magic ingredients for lower carbon cement, but the hydration was better. So the curing was better. So the permeability was reduced. So you have still have good concrete. And, um, and I think you're going to see a lot more of these different elements. Um, I need to, what was the one also Tyler Lay was the, the video. I haven't watched it yet, but he's going like this and it's all about pulp care. And I, and it sounds like some sort of like recycled paper materials that are, you know, maybe better than blankets and burlap, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, there's a whole host of things and, um, and I think re with regional considerations, as you alluded to, uh, for materials, for temperature, things like that, I think it's going to be a multifaceted approach to you know to coming up with solutions. Yeah, that your experience with the internal cure, there's no uh, no curing, no chemical cure, no uh, wet curing when using that product. Um, Yes and no. So, um, I, I, if particularly, let's say, if you were doing a museum quality um, polished concrete topping slab, I would probably want to combine internal curing with a traditional wet curing. You know, even just like three days, uh, because then you don't have that water going anywhere for your kind of day-to-day -day, uh, normal construction, whether it's, you know, warehouse and logistics or the new restaurant, you know, down the street, I think internal curing would be probably more cost effective in that because as you mentioned, you're not doing some of the, you know, cure and seal. So boom, there's, you know, depending on where you are in the country, there's 20 to 30, 35 cents a square foot taken off of the schedule immediately. Um, and one of the things that is also nice about that with, with fuller hydration is that your schedules, your, you don't have the same delayed day of strength considerations. So even if you're removing some amount of cement, um, your, your weight days are, are a lot shorter. Um, on a project in Florida, we removed 50% cementitious and we were polishing on that slab uh, by like day six or seven, you know, turning it oh, over. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so we had removed a lot of cement. Uh, but again, it's Florida and we had great temperatures. You know, we were at the time, we were like right in between, I don't know, I want to say like 65 and 70 um, when we were happening, you know, happening to do it. Um, and uh, so we were able to have continual curing. It didn't stop, nothing started flashing. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't do it in other places. On uh, another project where we were not removing cement, there might have been you know, a token you know, 8, 10% fly ash, something like that. Um, we 
core and shell were already up, and we turned over a like 35,000 square foot slab, poured, placed, finished, and polished in four days, um, and gave back a couple of weeks to the schedule, um, and uh, so. There are a lot of great ways, there are like new paradigms that are sort of entering the concrete market. And, uh, and I think ultimately what you will see is sort of a combination of, like I love Portland limestone cement, um, and it's such an easy way to cut body carbon by you know, anywhere from eight to 10%, but it's got workability issues. Um, uh, I know that in Los Angeles, I was talking to uh, an architect they're pretty prolific design firm there, and some of the ready-mix supply groups are gradually sort of introducing it into the market in like five percent increments, because the flat work finishers are like, "What? What's up with this concrete? You know, it's drinking up all my water. It feels gritty when I'm trying to ride over it. You know, so some of the behavioral differences um, are different. And the project that we did in Florida, which was uh, type type one L. Um, we did not have those issues because we were providing that water through internal curing. So it allowed us to get the benefits of the Portland limestone cement, but not have, you know, those sort of inherent negative behavioral characteristics that can come with it. So I, th I think it'll be a combination. Yeah. Yeah, because the architect, the engineer is not even thinking about that end of things as far as the finishability till he gets out there and the, they're doing the punch list. They're like, Oh, this looks like crap. Right. <laughs> right. And then, it, then it impacts them. Then, then they start asking questions. And by that time it's too late. It's, it's too late. And I think unfortunately, a lot of times you get contractors then that are going to be unfairly on the hook for items that were out of their control. You know, um, there's, um, an article, I did with um, Dr. Ray Taylor, um, who's a she's a fantastic cement scientist, material scientist. I uh, did a lot of the studies um, on Roman Harbor concrete. You know why is it still load bearing <laughs> despite being in the Mediterranean Sea for 2,500 years? Um, and another big brain, Keith Robinson, uh, who does specifications for uh, Dialog, Canada's largest architectural firm. Uh, and the article is called Changing the Language of Concrete. And at the beginning of the article, we talk about how everybody speaks differently about concrete. And contractors will tend to view the documents as like, this, like, this is what you're asking us to do. This is what you're asking us to price. And designers are kind of like, yeah, well, you know, I threw this document together, but I sort of want you to interpret it for me. And, you know, to make sure it all turns out okay. And... And so you've got these two different approaches to the documents. Um, and, and a designer can't, on one hand, demand, essentially, right, contractually bind somebody. This is what you're going to do. And then when it turns out bad, say, well, gosh, Mr. Contractor, you didn't interpret it the way I would have interpreted it, you know. Um, but, uh, and so it leads to confusion. It leads to every, you know four or five weeks of additional RFIs and meetings that nobody wants to be at. And ultimately what happens is 
everybody dips into their contingencies and pays a little bit or tries to identify one person um, and have them do it. Uh, I think uh, ultimately there needs to be a, a shift uh, in some of the messaging that's coming out from uh, Portland uh, Cement Association, National Ready Mix Association, uh, California Nevada Cement Association. It's, it's great that you want to make these material changes. You've got amazing solutions that if implemented properly will not only create low carbon um, uh, outcomes, but also high quality good concrete outcomes. And, and that has to be a marriage of, uh, of integrated design, uh, meaning, you know, talking not just with your ready mix supplier, um, uh, and, and uh, gosh, I don't want to pick on designers and engineers too much. <laughs> they're my bread and butter, uh, you know, and I, and I love them, but a lot of times they get very excited and they'll sit through, uh, you know, a manufacturer, trade organization, lunch and learn, they get an AIA credit, they get a sandwich or a cup of soup, and they're told to kind of follow this format and, and they've got a deliverable that's due Friday or maybe the next Friday. And so they incorporate some of those changes without having perhaps more, a more informed holistic approach. Um, and, and so, so I think ultimately they're going to have to spend a little more time doing deeper research. Um, and, I, and I also think suppliers who know their materials better than anyone else need to be thinking of, okay, we're, we're not just making ingredient changes, we're, you know, we're making material changes, and, and we need to be responsible for that as well. Yeah. Yeah, but unfortunately, I don't think they're going to take the time to do that, so that they'll keep you busy, Chris. So. Yeah, you know, um, I suppose there's that. That's... <laughs> Yeah, if somebody's breaking windows, then I suppose there'll always be a window repair, right? <laughs> That's right. All right, man. I think this is a good spot to leave it today. We'll definitely get you back on the podcast. That we def There's more to explore here. And as we've mentioned, I think we're all learning. Yeah, absolutely. We're all learning uh, as as this thing goes. And, and I bet you in 12 months from now, we'll look back and say, uh, 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 what? what we were doing exactly. Exactly. I'll <laughs> so, come back and tell you what I find out about red mud concrete <laughs> there you go um, but Chris if folks want to reach out to you and uh, get some help on, on specs and interpreting specs <laughs> what's the best way to get a hold of sure. you uh, just uh, pop by the website www.bennettbuild.us uh, Bennett like my name build is in build a building and uh, .us the, the greatest country on earth, the United States of America. There you go. And uh, I'll share your email address when we uh, post this too, so folks can reach out to you. Sure. So, uh, Chris, I appreciate coming on the show today, and we'll have to do awesome. it again. Hey, Seth, thanks for the invite. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining us for another Concrete Logic podcast episode. If you got some value out of this or you enjoyed it, please share it with others. And if you could take a moment and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app, I would appreciate it. We will uh, catch you on the next episode. And now Mike Dutton's going to take us out.
Working overtime, but while they're tired, they're tired for their nine. 